being mocked in a trial and crucified or choose the path of cowardice goes this way. This is Peter, the one who is now standing on full display in the public with so much online, so much he was facing in front of the very people that had just recently, two months ago, cried out in protest, crucify him about his friend. Leaving all of the associates, the disciples, to believe that if, if they got close to Jesus, that would be their end as well. And now he's about to call them on the carpet for their sin. This is Peter. And now Peter stands up and like a crescendoing preacher, he's about to tear in and let him have it. And he, hold up. <clears throat> Anybody else got a problem with this story? Because I got a problem with this story. Peter, to this point, had hardly been the emblem of unbridled courage and a standout among his friends. If anything, he had been a man of bravado and blustering good intentions, but very poor follow-through. He abandoned Jesus in a time of need. He denied his friendship with Jesus. And then even after Jesus was raised from the dead, Peter, surveying the struggle of the past, the absurdity of the present, and the uncertainty of the future, announces to everyone, I'm going fishing. Now we're going to come back to that in just a minute. And now Peter is standing up and standing out in this moment, and it leaves me with this tension and it's a tension that I hope all of us can feel in this moment. It's a tension of how does someone go from that to this? There's a gap here, right? That we got to struggle with for a moment here. How is it Peter, one who has proven that he is susceptible to any number of weaknesses and challenges and failures and regrets, how is it that he can now go from that to the voice of boldness and courage and faithfulness? And I think that's something that a lot of us face. It's the tension that we feel in the gap. The space between what we know that God has for us and what we feel capable of. Anybody know that gap well? Where you know that the spiritual journey with Jesus is more than just getting by or getting mired in the history of our regrets, failures, and weaknesses. The belief that there is so much more to this Jesus journey than just survival, that God wants us to radiate the, the, the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus wherever we go. We're just not sure how to get from that to this. How do, we, how do we live faithfully out of the gap? What does that look like? Can we talk about the gap for a minute? So when I think about Peter in the gap, I'm always reminded of a story. It's one of my favorite stories in, in the Gospels. It's a story out of John chapter 21. Now, in this story, Jesus is resurrected, which let's not... Let's not rush past that for a minute, shall we? 
Literally, Jesus gets up out of dead, okay, and shows up, as you can imagine. That might spark a few, like, mixed emotions, right? Like, we're pretty accustomed to that because we call it Easter. The first time around, I would imagine that's pretty disorienting, right? And then Peter, who's looking at this moment, and I love it because it's like such a moment in the scriptures I can totally get with. So I love Peter. He's, he just like looks at this moment. Jesus is out of the tomb. He's looking at his buddies and he goes, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and, the, and his buddies are like, yeah, we're going with him. Be, because that's what Peter knew to do in the gap. Peter was very much aware in his life of the residue of his failure. He knew that he had tried and he failed and he wasn't willing to give it much of a go again. So he goes fishing. He chooses to shrink back, to settle into the gap rather than to press forward into what God might have for him. And for Peter, that was fishing. And for us, that might be fishing. And what I mean by that is fishing is what we do when we settle into the gap between what could be what God wants for our lives, and what we're willing to give. Fishing is a life that attempts to skirt by, somehow trapped between our association with Jesus and the recognition that I could never really live up to all that God has for my life, never really match God's desires for my life. Fishing is a life of spiritual resignation. A life that simply says, well, this is good enough because I can't possibly be good enough for what God wants for my life. Fishing is what happens when we attempt to swim around in the tepid waters of our lukewarm faith, behaving just well enough to be considered a good Christian, but absent the life-giving zeal of someone who lives consumed by this belief that God wants to be at work in our everyday lives, radiating, shining through our lives, the hope, goodness, and grace of Jesus to everyone we come in contact with. Fishing keeps us on the edges. Just far enough from the shoreline where we can see where Jesus is, but far enough to stay back just in case he wants to call me into something I'm uncomfortable with. Fishing gives us the excuse of being able to celebrate the standouts while simultaneously protecting us from our own fear of failure. Fishing was Peter's default. I mean, that's what he was doing when Jesus met him. It was his go-to. It was his way of coping with the world out of control. It was his way of when he bumped up against something that made him uncomfortable. It's what he could run to. It's his default. It's his coping mechanism. I wonder what your coping mechanism is. What are you apt to run to when things get beyond your control? What are you apt to run to when Jesus begins to stir around in places that make you feel really uncomfortable? What's your default? For Peter, fishing was his comfort zone. It's where he understood the boundaries of risk, what he was willing to give. There was little that could happen on the waters that he hadn't yet encountered, so he was pretty comfortable with what he was going to experience. I wonder how many of us have made a home in our comfort zones. 
and we've told God, God, you can have all of me, you, you can have all of me that you want as long as you honor my risk boundaries. For Peter, fishing was his backup plan. You know, if this doesn't work out, at least I've got this. It was him leaving himself an out. Fishing was Peter saying, I've gone and taken this about as far as I'm capable of, so I'm just going gonna to settle here in the gap. So Peter shrinks back, makes a home in the gap. And I wonder how many of us are making a home in the gap between what has been, what is, and, and what could be. My, my friend Earl, many of, many of the people who knew my friend Earl knew of Earl when he was living out of the gap. Now, Earl, I got to tell you a little bit about Earl. Earl was, um, he was about 6'4", 300 pounds. He looked like Mr. Clean with a goatee. And if you've got that picture, now I want you to picture that his forearms were about as big as my head. Earl spent his days climbing electric poles, working for the electric company. And, and Earl, when, 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 when you would talk to people about Earl, they would point to a gap Earl and a post-gap Earl. They would talk about an Earl that when he was in the gap, he had, he had started to come to church and he came to church with his family because that's what you should do. And he got involved in church and he did the church thing and he, he, he showed up when he was supposed to and even served a little bit. And he kind of, you know, he even went to Sunday school from time to time. And, and, and that was just Earl. He, you know what, you know the thing about Earl? Earl was, Earl was well, I would say that Earl was a man who was nice enough, kind enough, and behaved well enough to secure his place amongst most other good enough Christians. Can I keep out there just for a moment? Earl was kind enough, nice enough, and behaved well enough to secure his place amongst other eh, good enough Christians. But when I met Earl, he wasn't there. When I met Earl, Earl was a standout. The man that I had met lived this life who more concretely than most other people that I had ever witnessed in my life radiated the love of Jesus in such profound ways. He stood out from among all of the other men in the church. And I was a newcomer to Christ, a newcomer to the church at age 25. It was my first entry into this Christianity thing. And as I entered into this Christianity thing, I bumped up against Earl and I saw in Earl the display of such care and conduct and compassion and love for others to include me. And I watched his unbridled passion and love for Jesus and his neighbor. And then he had this unbelievable capacity to stand strong in the face of temptation and sinfulness. And I found myself like a lost puppy dog sort of following around Earl. I just want to see, I like want to watch. And then I found myself saying something. Whatever he has, that's what I want. See, the people who knew Earl also knew of that Earl as well. 
man whose life had displayed so much of what I noticed, but they knew more about Earl. They knew the hardships, the struggle, and the challenges. That moment, that inflection point kind of moment where the, he realized that the life he'd been living in the gap was not going to get him through to where he needed to go and that something needed to change. That becomes a revelatory moment for many of us. So what happens in the gap? Like what, what happens that gets a purple person like Earl or a person like Peter to move from that to this? When I look at Peter and I will look at Earl and I start to consider the life in the gap, I'm always reminded of the moment in which Jesus makes a promise to his disciples and then he puts them on timeout. So in the story, after Jesus pulls Peter from the boat, which he does, Peter goes fishing, Jesus shows up on the shore. It's a great story. You got to just, John 12, chapter 21, you got to go read it. Jesus shows up on the shore and cooks breakfast. <laughs> Love it. And the Lord of the world, the one who hung the stars and the skies and the moon and boundaried the oceans, fries up some eggs. Peter comes to the shore. And you know, you know that's, Jesus showed up at the shore because that's who Jesus is. He's that patient, he's that forgiving, and he's that tenacious because he's not done with us, right? You know that, right? That's part of the catalyst that gets us out of a that to a this because, because God doesn't give up on us. And then Jesus, the Bible says he spends about 40 days with these disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God and revealing his plans to them. And it becomes painfully evident very, very quickly that the plans that Jesus was revealing to them were plans that, he was gonna, that they would be un, incapable of fulfilling because they had demonstrated their insufficiency too many times. So then Jesus says to the disciples, I'm about to do something through you. I'm about to send you into this world and display the richness of my grace to you and through you. And, and, and you're going to bear witness in this world to my love for the world. But before any of that happens, I need you to wait here. I need to put you on time out for a moment. I don't need you to go run off without the provision that I'm about to provide. And it says this in Acts chapter 1. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now there's, there's something being revealed here that you've, you've got to grab hold of. Before there can be a standout because someone stood up they first need to be filled up by the provision of the Father and Son, which is the Holy Spirit. There are no standouts that stood up who haven't been first filled up by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We've got to camp there just for a second. Because I've got to tell you this, anybody who moves from that to this Anybody who moves out of the gap that it's settled into and just shrunk back from, anybody who now is displaying the boldness and the courageousness of a faithfulness that makes you stop in your tracks, that makes you follow them around like a little puppy, asking, what do they have that I don't have, did not do so because they just 
operated out of religious reflexes or that they exercised their moral will. No, they came to a point in which they discovered their insufficiency and instead of shrinking back, they began to seek the face of God, believing that the provision of God would be all that they would need to enable them to live into the fullness of God at work in their lives. We call that sanctifying grace. We call that the fullness and the power of the Spirit of God at work in someone's life that literally transforms them in such a way that there's this, there's this gap Jesus follower and then there's this post-gap Jesus follower. Someone who lives and radiates and shines the light of Jesus wherever they live, work, and play. So what does that look like? Well, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, but first, time out. Can I say that to us, time out? Because it's easy to hear something like this and get all jacked up. That's what I want. That's how it was. Like, I saw Earl and I was like, that's what I want. I was like 25, in the military, juiced up on enthusiasm. I'd just gotten saved, and I was like, I was like, Earl, I want what you got. And Earl said, I'm going I'm to come to your house. So Earl came to my house, my wife and I, spent a year with us. Thursday nights, he had to navigate getting on post. He'd wait till my kids went to bed. So he'd come at 9 o'clock at night. He'd stay sometimes with us to 11 or 12 o'clock at night discipling us. And I was like, I, I got to get what you got, Earl. And he'd be like, yeah, I'm not sure you know what this is going to cost you. That's why you got to have a timeout. Because this isn't an eager emotional thing. This isn't a just, I'm going to run down. No, he says this, what, what is about to happen in your life is going to transform you, but it's going to be costly. That's why the disciples had to have a timeout. Yes, 10 days later, they would have this profound moment of boldness and courage and would be transformative and would birth the church and life as we know it would change from that point on. But before we get to that point, they had 10 days sequestered in a room in which they were doing some work. And when Earl would show up at our house, he would invite my wife and I to do some work. He'd say, in order to get ready to move from the gap to the post-gap life, in order to move from what has been to what could be, you got some reckoning to do. He said, you got to reckon with your past, your present, and your future. And you got to lay it all on the line. And you got to understand what that's going to cost you. So if you're here today and you're recognizing like, hey, I'm, I'm in the gap and I know that God has something more for me, but I'm not sure how to get there, but that's what I want. I want to tell you that, that God's about to put you in time out and do some reckoning with you. Because this isn't a cheap thing. This is a costly thing. You, you got to reckon. You got to come to terms with your past. Do you know for many of us, the past has left a mark on us? It's from the past that we, amass, that we amass our baggage and our residue, our wounds and our default mechanisms. An honest movement toward the sanctifying grace of God, the fullness of God's spirit within us means recognizing and consecrating, which means turning over to God where we've been and what got us there so that we don't get stuck there. 
Reckoning with our past doesn't mean we live into the shame of the the errors and the faults that have been a part of our story. It means that we reckon with them so we're not mired in those things, recognizing that we serve a God who is redemptive, who can bring us out of those things and restore our lives and make us new. But you got to name that stuff first. You got to deal with that stuff first. You know, I tell people all the time that, that the fruit of sanctifying grace is when you see someone able to own their own tendency towards rebelliousness and sinfulness instead of watching them blame everybody else for their problems. Without a doubt, there are some of us who have done things because of the conditions we've grown up in that set the stage, but I want to tell you at some point, your true transformation stops when you stop blaming the conditions and you start accepting responsibility for your own actions. That means reckoning with your past. And then you got to come to terms with your present, and this is a loaded one, because for some of us, we are so steeped in the present moment of our shame, having believed the lies that we're, we're no good, there's nothing good that can come of us, that, that, that this whole Jesus thing that's great for someone down the aisle for me, but not for me, and so we live in this shame, and I want to just tell you as, as bluntly as I can, shame is not of God. Your, your identity that has been captured by that thing or those things that have been a part of your story that is keeping you bound in the present, God wants to redeem that. It's the shame, it's the guilt. For some of us, it's our ego and arrogance. For some of us, it's our self-deceit. I try to tell people all the time, you give me about 15 minutes in my gap and I'll tell you all the reasons why I should remain there. And I will convince myself that I'm right. Give me long enough and I'll work to try to convince you that I should be there. Self-deceit, we've got to let that go. Reckoning with our present means identifying the reluctancies that we have to when God wants to move on our lives in some unique ways. Because let's be honest with ourselves that as good as this being filled by God's Holy Spirit and sanctified by God, we have these hesitations like, what could this mean for me? What could this cost me? If God were to do this in my life and then he sent me back to work, what might people say about me or think about me? How might my family deal with me? What, what might God speak to me and call me into that I don't feel like I want to do? And so in order for us to move out of our present, we've got to surrender our reluctancies and we've got to give ourselves completely to God. Coming to terms with our presence, or with our present, means this. It means renouncing any idol or allegiance that exercises undue influence of our lives that questions the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Okay, that sounds like a whole lot of theological verbiage. It means this. We live in a world that wants to divide you up and divide you against each other and then place an identity stamp on you and tell you you got to fall in place in order to fit, you got to fall in place to this ideology, this allegiance, this idol. To come to terms with your presence means to relinquish all of that and say, I've got one Lord and I'm a part of one kingdom. 
and none of that other stuff gets to dictate or determine my next steps. Which then means we got to come to terms with our future. Which means this. When we get saved, we're like, God, take my story and redeem it, but leave me with the pen. Because there's a good chance I'm going to want to, you know, I'm going to want to write a few of the next chapters. Coming to terms with our future means however scary and uncertain this may feel, you take the pen of your life and you hand it to the author of creation. And you say, God, I'm relinquishing copyrights. And from this point on, whatever you call me to, wherever you lead me, whatever you desire from me, you write the story. And I'll submit to it. Earl would show up at our house for a year, Thursday nights, 9 o'clock at night, and he would, he would regularly leave saying, you sure you want that? You want what I got, but you're willing to pay the cost. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. God is going to radiate his glory and the brilliance of his light into a dark world, but you got to be on timeout. you got to go up in the room. you got to do the work. Are you sure you want that? You ever wonder how many left in that 10 days? He said 120 were left. 500 later it talks about saw Jesus during that 40 days. So what happened to the other? Carry the zero. 380 people. Did they, did they get to the past and go, mm, I'm out? Did some of them get to the present and go, mm, nope? Maybe some of them got all the way to the future. They're like day eight, right? They're like day eight or day nine. And they're holding their pen and going, yeah, I'm going to keep this one. It's engraved. It's got my name on it. I'm, I'm believing for you that God wants to do a phenomenal thing in your life. I really believe that. I believe that, that no one is exempt from God's beautiful and profound purposes. That God, wherever you live, work, and play, wants to radiate and shine the glory of God through your life so that other people will see you and go, what do you got and where do I get that? And that comes when God's sanctifying grace grabs hold of your heart and you live with a singular focus on the love of God and love of neighbor, but that comes as you do the work. So instead of having a moment where I just sort of invite everybody to the altar, I'm going to send you home on timeout. I know that's not kind. But I want to send you home with this, with this recognition that you got work to do. Some questions to ask. Are you content to live here in the gap? Ooh can, I, ooh, can I ask you a different question? Is your family content with you to live in the gap? Where you're just nice enough, kind enough, and behave well enough to be considered amongst the good enough Christians? Or might your family want a post-gap you? Where you radiate and shine the love of Jesus in everything you do? I invite you to reckon with your past, present, and future, trusting and believing that when you do, the grace, glory, goodness, and power of the Holy Spirit will fall down upon you and transform you so thoroughly 
that people will say, I remember when they were, but now they are. And you, my friends, will be like my friend Earl. <laughs> and there could just be some folk around you following you around like a lost puppy dog saying, how do I get that? Can I pray for you? Father, what a gift to share this morning. The good news is that you desire more from us than we desire for ourselves. You've got bigger plans for us than we have for ourselves. The beauty in this, Lord, is that you make that provision a promise. The challenge is we got some work to do. But if our work 